This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, in the same way that we master the use of certain medications, we can master the uh, a certain principles of diet that we can use uh, to support our own nutrition, our family's nutrition, and also the patients we serve. Uh, and Katie's already uh, made the point that uh, the reason we care about what we eat is because a lot of the illnesses we care for uh, are related to uh, uh, diet and exercise. Uh, and the ones in orange here are the ones that stand out. But uh, you could argue that uh, many of the others, certainly from an etiologic or uh, certainly a therapeutic uh, uh, impact, are also related. Uh, but I think we're, we're quite convinced from many lines of evidence that heart disease, cancers, uh, cerebral vascular disease and diabetes uh, are uh, as the primary uh, causes of death in the United States and uh, increasingly the world uh, are uh, diet and exercise related. I will talk more about uh, exercise in the second uh, uh, presentation. But we can attribute uh, the amount of deaths in the United States related to poor nutrition and physical inactivity. And this has been a little controversial because um, when the CDC first came out with some data, they said that uh, diet, diet and activity now uh, were uh, um, passing tobacco as the leading cause of morbidity and mortality, and the tobacco community fought back on some of the methodologic issues. And I think this is another example, much like a lot of the diet controversies, where we can agree. We don't have to disagree that whether tobacco is worse or diet and exercise is worse. Uh, but rather work together against uh, both, uh, that is, the use of tobacco uh, and in favor of uh, uh, good nutrition and more physical activity. Uh, so uh, tobacco probably still is uh, more responsible for morbidity and mortality in the United States, <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, diet and exercise are on the short list and nothing else is close to third. We'll talk about physical activity and define what we mean by adequate amounts uh, later in the morning. Uh, but it's been estimated about uh, at least a half of Americans do not get the recommended amount of physical activity. Uh, and as Katie implied, uh, a very small percentage of Americans uh, eat a healthy diet consistent with the federal guidelines that uh, she articulated. That is, uh, uh, our current diet being too high in calories, saturated in trans fatty acid, which you'll come back to, salt and refined sugars, which I'll drill down on, and too low in uh, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, calcium and fiber, and I'll drill down on some of those. All right, so just uh, I'll say uh, just a few more words about uh, total calories and macronutrient balance, and we'll circle back to that when we talk about obesity. A few words about dietary fiber and dietary sodium. Uh, I, there was just an interesting study on vegetarian diets that I was fortunate enough to write a, a commentary on, and so I'll just uh, throw out uh, some thoughts about that. Um, uh, we'll talk about uh, antioxidants and B vitamins and the amount of supplements we should be taking and prescribing. Uh, Katie and I will both say a few words about fish oil, uh, but I'll go first. Uh, and then I'll just throw in a little bit about calcium and vitamin D. Uh, this could be the whole morning, uh, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I think uh, Katie did a nice job of framing that, uh, but I will just say a few words towards the end about what our current guidelines are. And then I'll make a few dietary recommendations for uh, what I, how I think about diet for myself and how I uh, counsel patients. I should say I am a primary care general internist. Uh, 
so I have a lot of administrative responsibilities, but I still do uh, maintain a primary care practice here at UCSF over on the Mount Zion campus. Uh, and I do, do take care of several hundred patients and uh, also run our uh, UCSF weight management program. So um, uh, do have a fair amount of opportunity to counsel patients about uh, diet and exercise. Um, so uh, again, as Katie implied, uh, the biggest issue has been that calorie consumption in the United States has increased about 30% uh, over the last uh, four years. And I recently had this observation um, uh, as I was talking to a patient about uh, diets, um, that if you think that you need about 2,000 calories to maintain your body weight, and, you know, there are different equations we use for estimating uh, energy requirements, but, you know, 2,000 wouldn't be a bad guess for most of the people in this room. Some of you would need less. Some of you would need a bit more. We'll talk about that again later uh, in the morning. But... And you need to, to lose a pound, you need to have an energy deficit of 3,500 calories. That means 500 calories negative or less per day. So the, an easy way to think about this and an easy way to communicate this to patients is you need to eat 25% less of what you eat currently. You know, and that, that just dawned on me as maybe for some patients a much easier way to think about it. So, when, so the essence that Katie was talking about, about portion size and the federal government finally saying eat less, it's actually a quarter less uh, if you want to lose a pound a week. And, so, and what we've done, in fact, is gone a quarter more uh, over the course of the last three decades. And, of course, those are the decades in which uh, the obesity and diabetes epidemic has uh, expanded. Now, if you look at food consumption data in the United States, uh, the main sources of um, calories in our food supply are shown here. And again, if you think about the points uh, Katie was making about um, the food pyramid in particular and some of the other uh, uh, ineffective uh, tools uh, that we've uh, relied on, you can see that uh, grains and breads are at the top of the list. So that uh, then becomes a very important thing to focus on, and uh, I'll, I'll drill down on that uh, further. Um, again, uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk about chicken in a different context in just a moment. Uh, and then uh, sugary beverages are right here at number four, uh, and some other fast foods uh, also on the list. So as you know, there's a move in San Francisco, and, uh, and uh, there was one in Richmond and Philadelphia and other uh, parts of the country that are uh, trying to uh, use various uh, public health and political health policy strategies for decreasing sugary beverages. Um, we support those efforts and uh, uh, hope that uh, San Francisco becomes uh, the first uh, community on record uh, against it. Because it's a tax, it's going to require a two-thirds majority. Uh, so this is a heavy lift, um, since there are always 20% of people who vote no on anything. Uh, but uh, the community is, uh, is fairly active about this, and uh, we're optimistic. Uh, Katie also made the point about alcoholic beverages. Um, remember that there are a, a seven calories per gram of alcohol, uh, four for protein and carbohydrates, and nine for fat. So alcohol is second on the list in terms of caloric density. And, and basically, if you figure out the amount of calories in that, those two glasses of wine, it's about the same as if you were drinking a sugary beverage. So beverages have calories, um, and that's true for wine and uh, beverages as well. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't include them, but it means you should be strategic, that you have a budget for the day of how many calories per day you can take in. And if you fill some of those with, uh, with wine, that's great. 
uh, but it means you have to then adjust the rest of what you're eating, uh, eating and drinking. So uh, people forget about calories uh, coming from beverages. So one of my rules of thumb is don't drink calories. Uh, of course, there's some fine-tuning on that, but I'll come to some uh, rules at the end of the talk uh, or guidelines of, that I've personalized. And I think Katie also made this point nicely, but this is to put some numbers on it, that if you look, again, this is from uh, food consumption studies and NHANES and other databases like that, but if you look at the calories per meal at home uh, compared to the calories per meal at a restaurant, you can see uh, it uh, explains most of the increase. And, of course, this is a major public health problem since food in, in, in many restaurants is cheaper than what you can prepare at home, uh, at least at first cut. You, one can learn how to do the opposite, um, and, uh, and much of our focus is in, in teaching people, uh, certainly uh, through um, the SNAP program and, uh, and many other uh, community groups increasingly trying to teach people how to prepare lower-calorie uh, food at home. But that is an extremely important emphasis that... Katie has already initiated. All right, so a word about macronutrients. A macronutrient is defined as something from which you get calorie, get you, from which you get uh, energy. And the good news is there are only four of them. Uh, so it's fat, carbohydrate, protein, and alcohol. Right? So those are the four things from which you get calories. So if you hear someone, so if alcohol is out of the conversation, uh, set aside just for a, a second, uh, if you hear someone talking about a, a low-fat diet by and calories are kept constant, by definition, that means more of the calories are coming from carbohydrate or protein. And similarly, if, you if someone defines a low-carbohydrate diet, uh, that means more calories are coming from fat or protein. So these are inverse. There are only three of them, and alcohol. And so don't get fooled uh, that uh, less of one means more of the other. And I think, again, uh, Katie's made that point. So especially in the context of weight loss diets, a lot of the controversy has been uh, low-fat versus uh, low-carb. Because um, if you keep protein constant, although some of the current diets have more protein, but if you keep protein and alcohol out of the conversation, now you only have two nutrients. Uh, and again... Uh, if you're eating uh, low-carb, that, that means more of the calories are coming uh, from dietary fat as a percent of calories. And we'll come back to that because our current thinking uh, is that it matters uh, what kind of fat is it is, what kind of carb it is, and what kind of protein it is. Now, most of the diet books since I can remember, uh, I think this started mostly in the 60s, um, have been controversies related to low-carbohydrate diets. Uh, and about on the, if you review the New York Times bestseller list from about the, the mid-60s until about f five or ten years ago, about every three years there was a new low-carb diet uh, on the market. Now there's one every week. Uh, but, uh, but it used to be about every two or three years. And uh, uh, this has been going on for a long time. Those of you who are old enough to remember the Johnny Carson show will remember uh, Atkins would come on the show and uh, Dr. Stillman would come on the show, and they would argue about their two diets. They were both low-carb, but one was more fat and one was more protein. And then the Scarsdale diet came out, and that was uh, uh, low-carb. Low, uh, and then Scarsdale got assassinated by his assistant, who was also his mistress. So, so the stories related to low-carbohydrates uh, diets have been uh, legendary. Uh, and I'll show you this data when we get to the obesity, but I think the take-home message... Uh, for me, anyway, uh, I like to be uh, uh, simplistic in my thinking about things that I can uh, teach the patients. 
is that you, we have a wide range of macronutrients that are consistent with a healthy diet. So if you look at the USDA guidelines now, it's no longer less than 30% fat. There's a range. And same with carbohydrates, there's a range. And so you can be on a fairly far, you know, medium to far end of the spectrum favoring uh, lower fat or favoring higher uh, carbs, such as uh, some vegetarian diets and the like, and still be within the U.S. guideline ranges. So we've liberalized that. And my own uh, personal uh, belief on this is that in most clinical circumstances, total calories trumps macronutrient composition. Now, what I mean by that is to say that if you're eating 1,500 calories a day instead of 2,000 calories a day, it doesn't matter that much where those 15 are coming from. We still want them to come from healthy foods using the plate and so forth. But it doesn't matter that much from a weight loss standpoint or a weight prevention standpoint, whether it's a little more healthy fat or a little more healthy carb, as long as the total is below what you need uh, or at what you need so you don't gain weight. So... Uh, in most clinical circumstances, since obesity is so central to virtually every condition we treat with diet, if you focus on total calories, you're going to accomplish the largest part of your clinical goal. So that's my, that's my focus. So I think as a clinician, where you, it's hard to master some of the subtleties. If you can really get good about teaching patients about portion sizes, uh, sources of hidden calories like beverages uh, and the like, uh, that will be very effective for you. So a word about uh, fiber, what has been increasingly proven, uh, although there's suggestive evidence, so that's controversial, it's not negative evidence, but mixed, uh, but more and more uh, recently has been the appreciation that fiber intake is associated with reduction in cardiovascular outcomes, so less uh, strokes and heart attacks. And as Katie mentioned, you can use fiber therapeutically because it lowers blood sugar in, the, uh, in diabetics and it lowers uh, LDL cholesterol in people with lipid disorders. So you can use it both preventively and also therapeutically. And as Katie mentioned, the, number, the magic number is 25 to 30 grams a day. Uh, the Institute of Medicine has pushed it a little bit, 30 to almost 40 in men, a little bit less in women. Um, and, but uh, 30 is not a bad number uh, to remember for both men and women. And as Katie mentioned, we take in about half that. Uh, and, uh, and so here are some of the, um, uh, the, the, the benefits that we've already discussed. So lower LDL, uh, lower triglyceride and people with lipid disorders, lower blood sugar, uh, a variety of uh, GI benefits and uh, satiety. Uh, and so this was the study I got to comment on. It was um, in the British Medical Journal, and it was uh, a meta-analysis of 20, 22 studies uh, following people forward over time. Uh, and not only did they show that there was a protective effect of dietary fiber on cardiovascular outcomes, which has been known before, um, they actually were able to calculate a dose effect, which was what was particularly uh, a new contribution, I thought, uh, from this paper, which I like. So, uh, and this is the dose effect here. So for every 7 grams of fiber, there was about a 10% reduction in events over, uh, over time. So this is not a randomized trial, and you know one can criticize the study, as we, I did in the commentary, that it's not a perfect study. Uh, one would need experiments, uh, randomized trials with control groups to really figure out if fiber was this protective. Uh, but this was a, as good a uh, meta-analysis of cohort studies as one could do, uh, coming from some really talented British epidemiologists. And so that 7 grams of fiber 
you can operationalize, as suggested here, one portion of whole grains and one portion of legumes uh, or a couple of servings of fruits and vegetables. Now, there, there is a variation amongst uh, fruits and vegetables, um, and uh, uh, I just uh, wrote down a few of these just to make a couple of points. So again, um, our goal is uh, 30. Most of us are half that, so you need, you're you looking for that extra 15 or so uh, grams of dietary fiber per day. Uh, I, I point here uh, psyllium seed, or uh, powdered psyllium. So this is Soto's uh, brand name, Metamucil, but there are many other products available. Uh, there are other uh, similar uh, or analogous soluble fiber supplements uh, that you can uh, purchase. Uh, but a teaspoon of uh, psyllium is only three grams a day. So when you're prescribing Metamucil or psyllium to patients, you want to push the dose. So if your goal is to get an additional 10 grams of fiber per day or 15 grams of fiber per day, you have to push well past the one teaspoon a day. So a tablespoon a day now is nine, um, and so you're getting closer. So you have to, you, you want to start slow, of course, because uh, some patients will get uh, flatulence or bloating or constipation, and you want to make sure you're prescribing it with lots of fluids. And you want to recommend, make sure you're prescribing it with lots of non-caloric fluids, because one of Barron's rules is don't drink any calories. Uh, so, um, but start slow, but don't have clinical inertia, push that, uh, up to a dose that's meaningful. So in terms of other foods, uh, though, uh, you can see, uh, and a serving is, you know, sort of basically what you can hold in your hand. Uh, there are more sophisticated ways to do this, but that's getting close, and it doesn't matter how big your hand is, so that people always ask that, just whatever you can hold in your hand is about a serving. Um, uh, and an, a an apple is uh, pretty good, oranges and so forth, but grapes have no fiber. So grapes are sort of uh, one of these natural, perfect packages of sugar water, right? And uh, uh, so very tasty, great for making wine, but not a good dietary fiber source. Berries are sneakily high in fiber. Um, so I just uh, cherry-picked uh, raspberries, but many of the other um, wild berries uh, are also strawberries and so forth. Blackberries are also a very good source of dietary fiber. We'll talk about breads in just a moment. The difference between um, uh, uh, wheat bread and white bread is modest. Uh, the issue here is you don't know if I mean whole wheat bread or just wheat bread that's not whole wheat, and we'll come back to that point. The breakfast cereals have been supplemented and very high in uh, dietary fiber, so that's a good source for some patients uh, compared to, uh, for example, uh, foods uh, which do not, have not been focused on dietary fiber. Shredded wheat, my personal favorite, is up here. Uh, here's brown rice compared to uh, white rice. So again, one serving a day, not that big a deal, but pe that's not how people eat rice. So remember Katie's plate of spaghetti? That's also the plate of rice that most people eat. You know, when you're in the restaurant, you get three of those. Um, and so uh, it, it, there is a difference as you begin to go through a week uh, of brown rice versus uh, white rice. Uh, we'll say more about nuts, but they're, uh, um, all, almost all the tree nuts are uh, high in dietary fiber and, again, uh, vegetables. Legumes are very sneaky. Marion and I, one of the exercises we did with the students in one of our electives was we did what Katie suggested. Is had the we didn't have the technology then, but keep a three-day diet record. Um, and we looked at various nutrients, and one of the ones we focused on was um, dietary fiber. And there were always a couple of the students who had really high dietary fiber, and I just kept scratching my head. Like, it was just like, how did they get 35 when everyone else is 12? And it turned out they were eating a lot of burritos. 
and so, uh, but uh, legumes are uh, a good, a very good source of, of dietary fiber. All right, and so this is sort of the take-home message. So when you think about the food guidelines, and just a, this is a one uh, a one slide summary, I think, of how I think about uh, uh, Katie's excellent presentation is that the goal is these three principles. And if you do nutritional epidemiology and look around the planet uh, at both uh, developing and developed cultures, uh, that the features of those that are healthy is that there's a wide variety of foods. So that was the original four food groups, right? The purpose of that was to get us to teach variety. High food quality, and that was sort of the mistake made through the guidelines over those uh, 30 years uh, that we're now beginning to address, and the right quantity. So it's uh, the right quantity, uh, the right quality, uh, the best quality you can find, uh, eaten in wide variety. So one of the, uh, again, the main features of the American diet gone bad uh, is uh, too many refined grains, and we'll say next, uh, too much uh, sugar. So the current guidelines, so in that lovely slide uh, that uh, Katie pointed to, uh, that you had to go online, that you'd want to go online to uh, myplate.gov, uh, it really gives nice advice. So we're no longer uh, neutral about what kind of grains and fruits and uh, meats and so forth to eat, as Katie suggested. In the grain section, it makes specific recommendations about eating um, uh, grains focusing on whole grains, and that at least half of the six, uh, six servings a day uh, should be whole grain. And I, I would say, in general, that for those of us who pay attention to what we're eating, um, and read labels and go to, your, you know, go to high-quality food stores and the like, that this is one of the harder tasks to accomplish. Because for this uh, to work, the first ingredient has to be whole, right? Um, and we'll come back to that. Uh, in the United States, uh, the, uh, instead of half of it being uh, whole grain, uh, seven out of the, uh, we eat too many servings, uh, and they're almost all refined. And here are some examples of uh, a serving of grain, again, making the point that uh, we massively underestimate what a, uh, a, what a serving is. So that plate of spaghetti uh, uh, that, that Katie showed would be three or four servings of a grain. Um, and those you know, three scoops of rice from the Thai restaurant uh, would be three or five uh, servings of, uh, of rice and so on. And here are some other examples. So again, I like to teach it about, you know, some people are more comfortable with uh, cups, people who prepare food. Um, I also take care of a lot of people who don't prepare food. Uh, many of them are men, uh, and uh, they don't know what a half a cup is, so I just say, you know, bunch up your hand, you know, that's it. Um, so, and there are some other examples here. But look at the size, so uh, um, the size of the serving here, uh, and it's basically half a baseball. So. That's another good image to uh, remind people. Muffins, you know, those things that people, that we call muffins in San Francisco now, that uh, those, those are like 1,200 calories, right? So that's not a serving of grain. That's, that's three or four servings of grains, not to mention two or three servings of fat and two or three, you know, sh servings of sugar. Now, so, so I said, so, so selecting whole grains is hard. Of course, there are many, many alternative uh, whole grains, excellent whole grains, other than uh, 
wheat, uh, but uh, wheat is still the most available in our society, and there are some reasons for that related to food subsidization that, uh, that we discussed earlier. But the key is really to find the word, especially when you're talking about wheat products and rye products and things like that, uh, try to find the word whole as the first ingredient on the label. If you're talking about quinoa or oatmeal, uh, it, it's you don't need that language. But for wheat products and rye products and anything that's uh, uh, refined, uh, the key is that whole is first. If whole is second, so if it says uh, wheat, wheat flour first, and then whole wheat flour second, you don't know what percentage that second number is. So it's only when it's first, because that's the dominant one, which I think has to be, is it over 50? I think it's over 50% as the, uh, for the first ingredient. And again, you can come up with some, uh, I learned these from Katie actually, uh, some uh, numbers if you're really uh, mathematical about it, uh, uh, and especially if you're doing a three-day diet record and keeping track, this would be a fun exercise, uh, is look for uh, or going through your uh, uh, cabinets and trying to find the ratio of total carbohydrates to dietary fiber. Uh, and you'd, you'd want it to be less than 10 for bread and less than 5 for cereals. So that, this one's going to take you a little time to think about, but um, it's, uh, it's a, a good exercise. All right, just a word or two about sugar. Um, the average person in the United States consumes 30 teaspoons of sugar and sweeteners per day. Uh, that's really mind-boggling. Um, uh, and then uh, that accounts for over 15% of daily calories. And again, remember that when we talk about sugar, we're not just talking about sucrose. Uh, this includes cane and beet sugar, high fructose corn syrup, corn syrup, dextrose, and honey. Uh, so uh, they're all more or less nutritionally the same. Um, and uh, uh, you could argue they shouldn't be in the food supply at all. I think that's probably a little too restrictive. Uh, certainly sugar uh, represents celebration in, in our society and most of the societies around the world. Uh, and so I think uh, one, one would not want to be totally dogmatic about this. Uh, I often joke and say this. You just shouldn't eat any foods with sugar in it. That, of course, is not realistic. Uh, but small amounts of sugar for celebratory events, I think, are uh, compatible with a healthy diet. Uh, the problem is this very large quantity. And uh, the Heart Association recommends uh, less than uh, six teaspoons a day, which is 24 grams. Uh, again, four calories per gram, so about 100 calories a day of added sugar uh, per day uh, for women and a tiny bit more for men. Uh, and, and you can see that would be um, uh, a 80% reduction in what we're currently doing. So, again, the dogma here is not that sugar products don't need to be on the planet. They can stay on the planet, uh, but they're celebratory. Uh, and think of it that way, that when you have a birthday cake or a wedding cake or something, uh, obviously you want to continue to do that. Uh, but it shouldn't be... Uh, uh, part of your daily uh, calorie intake. All right, a few words about salt. So this has, again, been around as a hot topic in nutrition for decades. Um, and again, a, a lot of it comes from uh, epidemiologic cross-country uh, um, observations uh, uh, between the relationship of salt intake and high blood pressure and the relationship between salt intake, high blood pressure, and uh, cerebrovascular disease and cardiovascular disease in general. It's worth noting that 
the uh, Yanomamo Indians who live in northeastern Brazil, um, and there are probably other uh, cultures as well, eat about two milligrams of salt per day, of sodium per day. Uh, so the human body does not need sodium as a, as a constant dietary intake. Uh, for the most part, we have a steady state, uh, and what you take in, you excrete in the urine. Uh, and again, if uh, you sweat a lot, then you also lose uh, salt that way. But salt, um, sweat is hypotonic and is, uh, is not uh, uh, as dense as uh, urinary salt excretion, depending on your fluid intake. But the point is, the, the human species does not need a lot of salt today. So 1.5 grams a day, which sounds like a major restriction, is way more than, their, the, than peoples around the planet uh, in other cultures eat. So the new study uh, that sort of got this conversation going uh, in the last uh, several years came from UCSF. Uh, uh, Kirsten Bibbins Domingo, uh, who is a, a professor of medicine here at UCSF, uh, working with Lee Goldman, who is our former chair of medicine now at Columbia, uh, with something called the coronary heart disease policy model. And so this is a model. This is make-believe. This is not a study. Uh, but they've worked on this for decades. And, they, uh, and what you can do with this is manipulate the data and see what, uh, what impact uh, a change in blood pressure has on cardiovascular outcomes, a change in lipids has on cardiovascular outcomes, tobacco, all the standard risk factors. And what they did uh, is plug in um, changes of variations in sodium intake and to see what impact it would have. And they, they, they showed that uh, by decreasing salt modestly along the lines of what we talked about already, uh, that there was a, a modest reduction in systolic blood pressure in the population. Now, remember that when you're one-on-one -on -one with an individual patient, not all patients will respond to a low-salt diet. It's only about a third of patients. Older patients with hypertension will. African-Americans typically will and others. Uh, but not every patient does. As they, some people have salt-sensitive hypertension. Some, some people don't. Um, but as a population, if, you move, if the curve is like that and you move that curve over just a little bit uh, of the blood pressure of the whole population then that translates through public health calculations into a tremendous amount uh, of events and deaths saved. And so that was the thinking here, that if we could lower sodium as a society, just move the curve a tiny bit back to the left, uh, that it would translate uh, into uh, less cardiovascular death. Um, and so uh, th this particular paper and many papers since uh, have recommended uh, regulatory changes here. The, uh, in individual patients, uh, uh, as I suggested, uh, sodium restriction does work on average, uh, but it's not uniform. And uh, if you can uh, cut down the sodium by about 100 milliequivalents, uh, say from 3.5 to 2.5 grams of sodium a day, uh, blood pressure comes down equivalent to a weak drug, so uh, equivalent to a low dose, a starting dose, say, of hydrochlorothiazide. Um, the DASH diet is the other food guidelines type diet, you know, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, uh, high fiber, uh, uh, low saturated fat. That too will lower blood pressure, and the two are additive. Uh, and so uh, it's as you're teaching people about low sodium, you also want to be teaching people about fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Both together will lower uh, blood pressure in individual patients. Uh, so we get a benefit both one-on-one -on -one with individual patients, and theoretically we get this benefit um, uh, as on population health, if we can just uh, move the curve a little bit. 
And as uh, Katie suggested, the dietary guidelines um, um, suggested 2,300 for the general population, but 1,500 for uh, a, a selected subset. And I think everyone was surprised, uh, as she mentioned, that that selected subset was actually half the population. Uh, so that was probably a mistake. Since the average intake is 34, uh, there's no point in uh, no point in talking people to go from 34 to 15 when they can't go from 34 to 33, right? So the basic principle is, you know, uh, if you can't always make the perfect choice, make a better choice. And so getting people just to eat a little bit less uh, is sort of both the one-on-one and also population goal here. So the Institute of Medicine wisely uh, contradicted uh, uh, the uh, USDA and said, wait a minute, 1,500 is too low. Uh, let's get everyone to 2,300, which is a teaspoon of salt per day. And that, you know, like, let's, let's accept this as a victory. If we can get there, we're nowhere near there. So there's no point in setting an even lower limit. Uh, and more, and in addition, if you really want to be evidence-based about it, the evidence of that you need to take people down to 1,500 is, is not present. So when I was uh, in, medical, in nutrition school and early medical school and teaching about salt, I used to say the following. I, I used to teach that, that a third of salt was naturally occurring in the food supply. Uh, a third of salt, uh, the, a large third of salt, if you will, uh, came um, uh, from processing food. And a smaller third, but still a significant portion, came at the stove and the table. And that was true about 40 years ago when I first started thinking about this. And what's really fascinating is that it's false now, that in fact, 80% of salt, salt uh, comes from processed and prepared foods. Uh, and as Katie suggested, the amount that come at the table from uh, home cooking uh, or uh, salting your own food uh, is really quite modest. And because the overall amount has increased so much, the amount from naturally occurring sodium, uh, ha has, which used to be close to a third, is now down to 12%. So uh, this is a major change and a very important point um, uh, in counseling that has already been emphasized, which is uh, the focus on salting food yourself or even uh, at the table or the stove um, is pales in comparison to the food purchases and consumption uh, in anything in a bag or a box. So unless it says low sodium on it in big labels, because that's sellable, uh, it is, it's high sodium. Now, here are the top sodium sources in the United States. Now, you might say, you already showed us this slide. And, and that's because the top sodium sources in the United States are, in fact, very similar to the top calorie sources in the United States. Um, and again, uh, breads and pastries are still at the top of the list. Uh, the only surprise here, I think, is chicken, and in part on the calorie side, that's because we eat so much uh, chicken, and especially uh, in fast foods and the like, chicken nuggets and fried chickens and things like that. But in this particular story, it's also complicated by the fact that the chicken producers inject salt water into chicken to plump it up. So this is, uh, this is a little bit like finding whole grains. This is one you have to do a little bit of detective work. Uh, to find chickens that aren't plumped up with sodium. Um, and, uh, and, you, and your taste buds may be adjusted to that so that when you make that switch, the new chicken may not taste quite as good as the old chicken that was plumped up with sodium because uh, 
One thing I haven't said yet about sodium that I really like. So when we talk about getting patients to eat less calories, it's really hard to do because calories are everywhere and our, our love for calories is universal uh, and biologic. That's not true for sodium. As I suggested, the Anomamo Indians don't eat sodium. And in fact, if you put patients or people uh, on a metabolic research unit and put them and, and do food uh, preference testing and uh, identify patients who like their food salty, and then put them on a low-sodium diet in a controlled setting, and then bring them back and do food preference testing now three months later, you lose your taste preference for sodium, for salt. So that is really good news, because you never lose your taste preference for calories uh, or sugar. So um, that's, that's a, a good trick. And again, uh, some of the other things you don't think about is sodium sources, like sugary beverages, uh, are on this list, uh, pizza, uh, and again, uh, a long list of processed foods. But the take-home message here is that breads, again, processed breads are number one on the list, and so that's uh, another good reason to uh, both decrease the amount of, uh, gra uh, refined, of grains in general and processed grains in particular. I think we already... So this is how it breaks down in our food supply. Again, mostly coming from cereal and cereal products, uh, then meat and meat products, include, especially processed uh, meats, of course, and a little bit from dairy. Katie already uh, made reference to this study, and I just wanted to mention it again to make one other point. So this was advertised uh, as a study that proved that the Mediterranean diet uh, save lives uh, by reducing cardiovascular events. This is the one she uh, mentioned that was uh, this year uh, and, uh, published in Spain. Um, and what they did, and it was a challenging study to figure out, and you really had to go through the appendix to figure out what people were eating. But the, the bottom line was that these were Spaniards who were all eating a Mediterranean diet or varying degree of Mediterranean diet, not like Greek school, Crete school kids from the 1960s, but more Mediterranean than what we would consider. And then they, so they kept those people the same, and then the, uh, the control arm, they said, uh, eat a low-fat diet. But they didn't do much of an intervention for them. So at the end of the study, the people on the so-called lower-fat diet were eating about the same as what the people on the Mediterranean diet were eating, with some differences, but same amount of calories, uh, same, same amount of uh, fats and so forth, but the main difference was that that the one of the experimental groups got olive oil, and the other got an ounce of nuts, and that's why I'm showing this slide because we haven't mentioned nuts too many times. But so I think, although I am a big fan of the Mediterranean diet, but I think this what this study mostly shows is that in people on a relatively good diet to begin with, adding more olive oil or adding more nuts saves lives. So this, would need to be this should be repeated. This is too remarkable an outcome uh, for a, a study to totally believe. Uh, but so I think it's a little bit less of proof that the Mediterranean diet works and a little bit more suggestion that, in fact, uh, using olive oil and using nuts uh, are, uh, are, are effective. Uh, so uh, an excuse to mention nuts um, and... Uh, so include those in your diet. Um, they're very healthy as, uh, and uh, maybe life-saving. And it's mostly tree nuts. So the study used almonds and walnuts and hazelnuts. Uh, they did not use pistachio nuts, but we think pistachio nuts also as a tree nut would also be included. Um, almonds, if I didn't mention those. Uh, but remember, those should be unsalted. 
for the other the other reason that we've already discussed. And then also be aware of the calories that a small handful of nuts, uh, 10, 20 nuts, depending on the nut, gets up to be a fair amount of calories. Remember, you have a calorie budget and you want to spend that wisely, but uh, nuts are a good investment. So they're excellent snack food uh, or cooking food. All right, um, let me just switch next to vegetarian diets. This was a, a really fun study. Um, um, I, the, qu- the question I wrote and this, uh, in a commentary on this was, should we all be vegetarians? Um, so, Because uh, this was a study from the uh, Seventh-day Adventist uh, cohort. Um, as you know, their, the preferences for uh, towards vegetarian diets uh, and a variety of other health behaviors. So what was interesting about this study, because when you compare Seventh-day Adventists to other groups, it's hard to know what aspect of the Seventh-day Adventist lifestyle is associated with better health outcomes. So this was a study, and there had been an earlier one, uh, that only studied Seventh-day Adventists and looked at their diets and compared them with each other. And so um, it was labeled as a study of vegetarians. But in fact, uh, they had, as shown here, a wide range of people who they defined as vegetarians. Uh, and in fact, if one of you said, if, you, if one of you answered that first slide saying, I'm a vegetarian, and I was your clinician, um, I actually wouldn't, that, that word wouldn't tell me hardly anything about what you're eating, right? So that's just a label. Uh, and in fact, uh, if you uh, survey people who call themselves vegetarian and look at what they're eating, uh, these are uh, a partial list of some of the subsets. Uh, so th- when you see the word vegetarian, just keep, it, keep asking questions because that word doesn't tell you too much. Um, and you really want to know. And, of course, you can be eliminating meat from your diet and still be eating a very unhealthy diet, right? Uh, or you can include meat in your diet and have a very healthy diet. So uh, the word vegetarian doesn't help. Anyway, what this study did, very big study, um, and they had a fair number of deaths that they could evaluate over an almost six-year period, and they compared these different subsets of vegetarians to the non-vegetarians, uh, and they looked at um, uh, uh, mortality, so death rates um, in um, the vegetarians, and the, the headline was that the vegetarians live longer than the non-vegetarians, so that was the primary outcome of the study. And then when you did subset analyses of the um, uh, the different groups, the lowest mortality uh, was in the pesco vegetarians and the vegans. So for those of you who eat fish, um, so we'll come to Michael Pollan's recommendations in the end uh, of you know, eating mostly plants, uh, but one could editorialize and say eat mostly plants and some fish. Uh, and I think that gets you, at least in this observational study, as good a data, a good outcomes as uh, the people who are eating pure vegan diet. All right, just a few words about supplements. We will still take a break, I promise. We're a little bit late. So um, not too much new here, uh, except the news is all bad. Uh, And so if you don't know that news yet, let me reiterate it. Um, So this is uh, one particular study. It was a meta-analysis of uh, 47 high-quality studies, lots of patients, lots of deaths. And when you look at all of the antioxidants that we have assumed would save lives, it turns out they either don't save lives or they kill people. Now, this is one of the best examples of trying to understand why we do, why we in, believe in randomized clinical trials. Because if you just looked at eating patterns, you, the people who ate foods with more antioxidants lived longer. 
people who ate more fruits and vegetables lived longer. The people who uh, took supplements seemed to live um, uh, li- seemed to live longer. These are just an observations. The people with higher blood levels of different antioxidants live longer. And so all this observational evidence suggested that antioxidants would make you live longer. And it sort of made sense pathophysiologically because uh, we know that oxidation and cell death is a part of aging and death. Uh, and uh, so antioxidation, uh, cell aging and death, should be protective. But when you actually study it in a randomized controlled trial and give a big group of people a supplement and a big group of people a blinded sugar pill and see what happens, this is the results. So vitamin A supplements, uh, 16% increase. This is death now, right? This isn't some soft endpoint. 16% increase in uh, deaths. Beta carotene. I used to have a slide in my early nutrition lectures about beta carotene that says no known toxicity of beta carotene, right? It was this healthy antioxidant, uh, 7% increase in death. Uh, vitamin E, 4% increase in death. Vitamin C, increase in death, although it was not statistically significant. All the others were. So antioxidant supplements are no longer we as a community can be neutral on. Uh, so I used to say to my patients, okay, if you want, you know, you, I think you're, you, know, you may be wasting your money. There are better things to do with your money. You're mostly urinating it out, uh, but I don't really care. Say so that's what I might have said 10, 15 years ago. It's not what I say now. So now actively recommend against taking uh, doses, supplemental doses of these uh, vitamins. Folate is another one we had very big hopes for. Um, again, it made sense. Uh, folic acid lowered homocysteine. People with high homocysteine had more heart attacks and strokes. Ergo, if we give people more folic acid and other B vitamins, they should have less heart attacks and strokes. Made sense. Uh, and in fact, studies then used folate, and sure enough, homocysteine levels went down, looked good, uh, until you actually do the randomized controlled clinical trials. Uh, so this is, a, again, a summary of the trials, but uh, homocysteine went down, but no effect on uh, death, cardiovascular events, uh, or cancer. So folic acid does not, as a supplement, prevent cancer or heart disease. Now, the good news about folate, though, is that it does prevent neural tube defects. Um, and so this is one of the few exceptions to the rule about vitamins and vitamin supplements. Since half of pregnancies in the United States are unplanned, and neural tube defects are, occur very early in pregnancy, uh, developmentally, often before the first month or six weeks, then women of reproductive age should be eating uh, enough folic acid. So that is something. Uh, of course, folic acid is found in foliage uh, and, um, and other green leafy vegetables and other fruits and vegetables. So it's easy to get that on a DASH-type diet or a guidelines-type diet or a plate-type diet or whatever we're calling it. But it's not bad practice to give women of reproductive age, especially who are not eating that kind of diet, as most of our women are not. We said 10% only, only are following guidelines. So using a mixed uh, a multivitamin in that population with folic acid is fine. This has gotten much better in the United States since a flour has been fortified with folic acid. And as I suggested, we now eat, since we eat so much flour, um, but again, that's one of the uh, circumstances clinically where a, a, vitamin, a multivitamin is uh, evidence-based. Omega-3s, uh, this is one of the more controversial ones, um, but let me just skip uh, to, uh, to the end. Um, so this was a meta-analysis, again, of 46 di- 48 different studies. Uh, no significant effect of omega-3 fats on mortality, cardiovascular events, or cancer. 
If you look at diet-only trials, there was also no discernible benefit. Uh, the take-home message here, I think, is um, uh, not to encourage a fatty acid, uh, omega-3 fatty acid supplements anymore. Again, um, uh, n- no benefit. And although the evidence is weak for foods with omega-3 fatty acids uh, preventing uh, cardiovascular outcomes, uh, and better trials are needed, I think we can still recommend eating foods that are rich in omega-3 fatty acids, uh, such as ocean-going fish and the, large ocean-going fish and the, and the like, but it may not be as beneficial as we once thought, and supplements have gone out of style. So just in the last year, uh, this month there was actually a third one, but just in the last year there have been two other big studies. The ORIGIN trial of 12,000 patients randomized people to a gram of omega-3s, followed them for six years, no reduction in death or cardi- uh, cardiovascular events. And then another one also published in the New England Journal, a uh, large number of patients, same design, no reduction in death. And then a third one was just published this month, no benefit. So again, I don't think there's harm from omega-3 supplements as opposed to antioxidant supplements where there is harm, uh, but there's no discernible benefit. So I, I now recommend patients uh, not to take it because it, uh, um, people already take a lot of pills and I want them to take certain pills, my pills. <laughs> All right, so, and I, I said, I just wanted to touch on vitamin D and calcium. This is the most uh, confusing of the topics, but, but I agree with the general uh, 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 theme that uh, uh, Katie mentioned in terms of uh, some of the cross-cultural observations um, and if you look at the current recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force that has looked at all the literature, let me go back a step. So vitamin D in observational studies is now at the phase of the literature, not unlike those beta-carotene vitamin A, vitamin C studies were 20 years ago. A lot of evidence from weak studies suggesting that vitamin D, either in supplement or vitamin D levels, is associated with some good health outcome. So a lot, of, a lot of that kind of evidence, but it's very weak evidence. We've been burned before with supplements on the antioxidants. We've been burned with estrogen as another example of that. Uh, there are many other examples in the medical literature. So I would just be cautious. And the guidelines for who to check a vitamin D level on are not well established. So um, I think by the take-home, so I don't check vitamin D in every patient who comes in with fatigue or, uh, or so on. If I'm worried about bone health, I do. But, uh, and so we, there are no good gu- guidelines on who needs vitamin D measured, it's, but it's not every patient on the planet, number one. Number two, uh, the, and the skin doctors and I uh, debate about this quite a bit, but I think we've overdone it with uh, uh, sun protection, uh, is my personal feeling. Most actinic keratoses, in fact almost none, become cancers. Uh, and so we've created a whole industry of uh, skin damage uh, and sun protection at the expense of vitamin D uh, nutrition. Uh, and so, um, so I, I'm, I'm in the camp of uh, be outdoors uh, at least some of the time. It's okay to be, have uh, lesser uh, skin protection, especially in places, uh, uh, let's say, non-face and so forth. And generally, uh, we do recommend using it uh, if you're on a medication to prevent osteoporosis. So if you're taking bisphosphonates, certainly we always prescribe calcium and vitamin D because all the studies that show that bisphosphonates work, we're done with uh, calcium and vitamin D. But for the population at large, uh, the current recommendations of the calcium and vitamin D supplements uh, are not recommended that there's insufficient evidence to recommend that. 
So we backed off on this. There's some evidence that if you take calcium without vitamin D, there's more heart disease. Um, and there's a fair amount of evidence that uh, taking supplements has no effect uh, uh, in uh, average risk uh, individuals. So this is a literature that's still developing. But again, I never jumped on this bandwagon. But if I was on it, I'd get off uh, and, uh, and not, uh, not recommend high doses of vitamin D and calcium supplements in well people. Uh, but we do recommend it in people with osteoporosis. Let me just close and we'll jump back to that because I think that that's a longer conversation and I don't want to cut into the break. So just to summarize, um, beta carotene, discourage, vitamin E, discourage. These are as supplements, not as foods. Remember, there are 40 different carotenoids in a carrot. And so when you take out one, which happened to, uh, you know, you just get the one. And the idea is if you eat a carrot, you get all 40 and God knows what else. So eat the carrots. Uh, vitamin E, same thing. Eat healthy oils, plenty of vitamin E. Uh, vitamin E uh, insufficiency is very rare, uh, really almost undefinable in the United States. So you don't need supplements of vitamin E. Folate, make sure you're women of reproductive age. Uh, pre-pregnancy, have adequate folate intake, either preferably with foods, but with supplements if needed. Omega-3 is no benefit. So despite the early studies that suggested benefit, the follow-up randomized trials have been convincingly negative. And vitamin D and calcium used with bisphosphonates for sure. In patients with osteopenia who don't need drugs, maybe. I think that's a good way to hedge your bet. But for the average uh, young adult or a middle-aged adult, I'd say probably skip it. And then if you're going to, and make sure that uh, if you do check blood tests or have a blood test checked, that your lab is using the up-to-date definitions of deficiency. So many labs, including UCSF, use 30 nanograms per milliliter as the lower limit of normal. But the Institute of Medicine recommends 20. So there's just a ton of people out there between 20 and 30. And they're fine. Just follow them and tell them to be active and keep eating foods. um, And they don't need supplements. And it's really only the people under 20 that you need to uh, correct. But this is controversial. And you could probably ask five other people and get different opinions on this. All right, so Michael Pollan's three rules, you all are aware of these. Uh, Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. It's hard to top these. You know, I think he nailed it here. Um, So uh, you could add uh, add maybe a little fish uh, would be good. Uh, My rules are a little uh, broader. Um, uh, So um, I support his rules and would add these. uh, That the, the primary focus is to eat unprocessed foods. And I don't mean uh, one particular foods from one particular food, uh, supermarket, uh, but eat foods that are whole in their natural uh, in their natural state, which what your grandmother would recognize as food. Eat the right amount to maintain your body weight. We'll talk about weight loss next. But in our society, if you don't have a strategy for maintaining your body weight, you will gain weight. So you don't have to focus on losing weight; just focus on not gaining weight. And we'll say more about that. Eat something colorful at every meal uh, and every snack, and uh, Skittles don't count. So um, this was a family uh, game we invented in my family early on, and uh, we used to have broccoli and asparagus sword fights and uh, all sorts of dipping sauces. Uh, uh, to get. Never ask a kid if they want vegetables. You ask the kid if you want broccoli or asparagus, uh, those kind of things. Don't drink any calories. I think this is a little bit hyperbolic. Uh, Low-fat dairy products are fine, of course. Wine uh, is fine, again, as long as you're balancing in in your total calorie budget. 
this is a sort of basic, more of philosophy of life, but it applies to nutrition. If you can't make the best choice, make a better choice. So when you find yourself in a situation like breakfast this morning, I did not arrange the catering this morning. You come to my courses, you will eat better. Uh, but, um, uh, but I hope, but there were some choices. Uh, and so there are ways to eat uh, along the guidelines, and there are ways to not eat the guidelines. So not the way you would have set up breakfast, maybe, but there was an opportunity for a better choice, uh, and that's true in all of our food environments. Be as fit as you can be. Exercise daily. I'll say more about that in the next, and then eat with your children. So the family meal is uh, essential. And then finally, um, you know, I get really frustrated. It's almost like, you know, going back in time when I see uh, people advocating for the paleo diet and Dean Ornish advocating for uh, vegan diets, and they just, it's like they're from different planets and they can't talk about it. But if you actually look at the foods they're all recommending, there's a tremendous amount, even at the extremes, there's a center where we all agree. And, you know, that on the, on the edges, there are debates about which macronutrient is better uh, and how much of meat, fish, and fowl. Should you be a vegan? Should you be a vegetarian? Uh, and there are other favorite people who have specific foods that they focus on as the cause of all evil. Uh, but almost everyone agrees, uh, if, um, if they're talking with any sort of evidence base, to limit uh, added sugar, uh, limit uh, and severely, 80%, limit refined grains by a lot, by about uh, uh, almost completely. Uh, Look for the word whole. Uh, um, Large amounts of uh, saturated and trans fat should be uh, limited. Again, small amounts of saturated fat are fine. Eat fruits and vegetables, healthy oils, whole grains, legumes, and nuts. Everyone agrees on this. So they don't talk about it because that doesn't sell the book. Uh, But but if you actually read what's in the book uh, and or look at the dietary composition, uh, almost everyone agrees with these principles. So uh, in the same way that I teach our residents uh, to master a uh, list of generic medications that they can be comfortable with, I would argue master a generic diet uh, for, uh, pra- for daily practice. I said primary care practice here, but it's true for any practice, um, and it, you know, with these kind of principles. So get comfortable with just a few little tricks. You know, eat less food, eat a quarter less, this is a serving, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think uh, uh, you'll enjoy your work with patients uh, counseling them about diet. So I think with that, I'll stop. And thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.